This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case i got bored welcome to literary treks your official books and comics podcast about star trek here on trek.fm i'm just one of your hosts the other host is dan gunther and with him as always is me bruce gibson (laughs) hey bruce how's it going today it's going good. I wanted to switch things around because it's always that same, you know, hi, I'm Bruce Gibson. And with me, as always, is Dan. And I just like, you know, kind of like mixed it up a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> I want to say with you, as always. Yeah, I, I, I like it. You know, it's yeah. I'm on board. So where are you? Because you're in a hotel room. I'm used to like the whole shelves and knickknacks in the back. Yeah. Instead, I've got really generic art of flowers and a blank gray wall. <laughs> <laughs> as anyone who's ever stayed in a hotel i'm sure can really easily recognize this yeah no i'm in uh i'm in edmonton alberta uh doing training all this week so i'm recording on the road <laughs> great i've done that so many times and i'm at home and now this time you're on the road so that's a little different yeah it's a little bit of a reversal of roles usually i'm looking at you in some sort of you know, generic hotel room <laughs> with flowers on the flowers wall. <laughs> on the wall, you know, nice, inoffensive artwork. Yeah. Boring. <laughs> yes. But you know, what's not boring is we read a Star Trek novel for today's show and that's going to come up in the feature. And it's the third book in the, a time to series of the next generation called a time to sew by Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore. So we'll get to that shortly. But first, we have news items. We have three news items. There's times there's really no news items, and then there's times there's a bunch of news items. So what's exciting about this is that these are typical um, book news, but not your typical books that we usually talk about <laughs> here sometimes. <laughs> so uh, one first one is a comic series. Uh, it's a four issue miniseries from IDW and it is Star Trek, but it's one of the crossovers again. So we've had Green Lantern and Legion of Superheroes and Doctor Who and Planet of the Apes. I can go on and on. This one's a new one. This is Star Trek versus Transformers. 
more than meets the eyes, the Transformers. <laughs> so I, I've heard that they may in fact be robots in disguise. Ooh, that may be. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of rhymes then too. So, but yeah, so these issues are written by John Barber and Mike Johnson. And artist is Philip Murphy and colorist is Leonard Ito. And uh, this comes out September of 2018. And Mike Johnson says that this is a crossover several decades in the making. And we could not be more thrilled to bring it to fans. John and I have are having a blast writing the first meeting of Starfleet and Cyber. Wait, what is it? Cybertronians? Cybertronians? I am I'm probably the only kid born in the early 80s who was never huge into the Transformers. I know, I know, gasp shock, but yeah, I Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, because I for when I was in I was just graduating high school when Transformers came out. So I never got into it. Mm-hmm. But the generation behind me, I used to hear talk about uh Transformers a lot. So Cyber Tron train no Cybertron <laughs> I can't even talk. <laughs> yeah, cyber Tro- Cybertronians, I'm gonna guess. Cybertronians, that's it. <laughs> I call them Transformers. Yeah. You know, people who love Transformers are hating us. Oh right man, now. <laughs> we are going to get the hate mail. Uh that's why the show is not called Literary Transformers. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so let me ask you this, Dan, since you were one of the few 80s kids that were not into Transformers, uh, are you excited about this? Probably not excited, but what are your thoughts about this series? Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not huge into this. I'm not, you know, this isn't one of those things that I was like, oh, man, finally they're doing this, you know, but it looks interesting. One of the things that I have to say looks really interesting about this is the Star Trek side of it is done in the style of Filmation's uh, Star Trek animated series. So we get, you know, Kirk and Spock from TAS instead of TOS, uh, which, you know, is really cool. And of course, Aaron Harvey over on Saturday Morning Treks is beyond thrilled about this because, you know, it's a little bit of a, a of an homage to the animated Star Trek. So, you know, Transformers, of course, are the Saturday morning cartoon crossed with the Star Trek Saturday morning cartoon. So it's kind of a, a neat based on that alone. I think that's kind of a neat little twist they've done here. Well, I, I, I'm excited about that part. Probably the most is just seeing uh, TAS in the comic book form. And I remember seeing an uh, image of Eric's and I think there's probably Imres in there, too. So we're actually seeing the animated series characters in uh these issues so i'm really excited about that i'm never i've I've said this over over again i'm not a huge fan of crossovers but a lot of these crossovers have worked you know pretty well uh and some of them i really have enjoyed so i think this is going to be fun even though i'm not big into transformers i'm not i never really watched any of those cartoons i've watched some of the movies uh and the funny thing about this too is when this was announced the day before, and I'm, I think it was Matt Rushing, who you know used to be on the show and edits the show to this day, um, he's producer. Uh, he tweeted something about Transformers and said something about you know he you know he likes Transformers or something to that fact. And I said, would it bother you if I say that I don't really care for Transformers? And then the next day, 
this series was announced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm going to care about the Transformers this time. Yeah, apparently. It's kind of like Legion of Superheroes or Green Lantern for me. I didn't know anything about them before, but you know, having to cover the the comics for this show, I learned a little bit more about them and, you know, uh, I should probably have learned something about the Transformers by now. So I guess this will be my chance. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that I don't like Transformers. I'm just not that familiar with Transformers to have a real opinion. So, you know, this, this may change. This may get me interested in Transformers. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. So that's not the only thing we have coming out. We also have a book coming out called Star Trek, The Art of John Eaves. And so we have Joe Nazaro, author of Star Trek Beyond, The Makeup Artistry of Joe Harlow. This hardcover is coming out by him with concept art from Star Trek First Contact, Star Trek Enterprise, Star Trek Into Darkness, and Star Trek Discovery. So if you love to look at the art of Star Trek, this art of John Eaves would probably be a must-have. It's coming out October 23rd, so get it in October. Or if you're patient and you want to wait, it'd be a great holiday gift idea. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. my wife's always like, you know, what do you want for Christmas? And I'm always like, oh, well, dang, I shouldn't have bought this book and that book or whatever. Because <laughs> now I have no ideas. I bought everything. Yeah, no, totally. This looks really cool. Uh John Eaves himself, just an amazing artist. And he's, uh, many of the designs you see in Star Trek First Contact, for example, the Enterprise E and the Akira class and all of those ships, you know, he, he had a hand in designing a lot of that stuff. And a lot of the background art from that movie is just gorgeous. And then carrying that, that on up through Enterprise and Into Darkness and and Discovery. I mean, you know, his designs for the Shenjo and the Discovery herself, just gorgeous stuff. So, uh, yeah, this I bet you this would be just the coolest thing for a Star Trek fan to get for Christmas. I'm adding it to my list. <laughs> awesome. Definitely. So we have one other book. It's the last one, and it's called Star Trek I Am Captain Kirk. This is a little golden book. It's aimed at two to five-year-olds. It's 24 pages, and it's coming out January 8th of 2019. And uh, the summary we have here says, Whether making strange new discoveries at the farthest reaches of the galaxy or facing off against Klingons and other alien races, find out what makes Captain James T. Kirk the most famous Starship captain ever. Star Trek fans of all ages will love this action-packed little golden book featuring Captain Kirk and the crew of the USS Enterprise from the classic TV series in a unique retro art style. Can I just say that I'm probably so excited about this book that it's going to be my favorite of 20 19 (laughs) (laughs) that might be the case for me too i don't have any kids yet but i might pick this one up and just kind of hold it in reserve in case that ever happens because what a cool idea you know and uh yeah any friends with two to five year old kids you might be seeing this (laughs) as a gift for me in the next little while because uh yeah this looks so cool what i like about it is as I was thinking about it this morning, this may be some person's first introduction to Star Trek. As a little kid, 
they have this book and they really like it. And then as they grow older, they have fond memories of it and start watching Star Trek or reading Star Trek. And all of a sudden they're a big Trekkie because they read I Am Captain Kirk. What I'm really excited about this, which is funny because I'm excited about a book geared for towards two and five year olds, <laughs> between two and five year olds. But the thing is, I remember when I was a kid, I had a lot of little golden books. Mm-hmm. And that's where I used to do a lot of reading. And I would have all these books. And actually, I re- vividly remember, and I don't have that many memories of being really young, but when I was really young, I would go out um, on our back porch and we were in a duplex and there was a kid on the other side of the duplex and there was a fence between our porch and his and we would share books over the fence to each other oh that's and cool read them on the porch and i would have a lot of these golden books and that's the majority of the ones i had so the first books i was reading were little golden books fast forward to now i read all these star trek books so we're marrying star trek and little golden books on the one it's like my past and my present all in one. Oh, that's really <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that's really sweet. I I can see, you know, and, and me too, all these little golden books that make up the the books that introduced me to reading at a really young age. So I really like your idea that this could be some kid's first introduction to Star Trek. And then, oh, man, that's really sweet. <laughs> This is a very sweet show. Mm-hmm. I've always thought so. <laughs> yes. But you know what? It's a time to do the feature. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. <laughs> so on today's feature, we're talking about the novel, A Time to Sew. It's the third book in a Time to series starring Star Trek The Next Generation. And this book, as I mentioned earlier, is written by Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore, and it was originally published in April of 2004. So, here we go. So, every time I say so, I'm going to think of a time to sew. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Jan, is, if I remember correctly, you, you have read this before, or did you? Yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure I read this before, quite some time ago, back when it first came out when I was intending to read all of the books and then stopped, I think I either after this one or partway through the next one after this one or something like that, probably for no other reason than I got really busy and then forgot to go back to it. But, you know, reread, presumably rereading this, I, I do recognize a lot of what's coming up kind of vaguely. So I'm pretty sure I did read this back in the day. And I have to say this book is, probably the culmination of Picard's orders over the years to make it so. Am I, am I wrong about that? Hmm. I had a feeling that was going to come <laughs> up at some point. It's the <laughs> obvious joke. So of course I've got to make it. <laughs> you know, what's sad about this book is that he never says that phrase, make it so in it. I feel like he probably the authors consciously steered clear of it. They probably wrote that. They're like, Oh God, no, take that out. <laughs> It would have been funny if there's a scene where Riker says, you know, is it time? And Picard says, make it so. Exactly. You know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, I, this is my first time reading this book. So I read A Time to Be Born, A Time to Die, 
about four or five years ago and then reread it when we reviewed it here on this show, but I never got to a time to sew and I had already purchased it. I already had it sitting there waiting. It was on my to read on Goodreads and I just didn't get to it. And then I got involved in this show and this show really decides what I'm going to read every week. So I don't get to move on and necessarily pick what I'm going to read. I mean, we decide what we're going to do on the show, but you know, it doesn't always allow time to get to other stuff. So finally, now I've got to read a time to sew and I have no regrets on that. So this book is actually divided into two parts. So part one takes place in 2151. Yes, this is a next generation book, but when we get to part one in the start, it's taking place in the time of the Enterprise NX-01 in its first year. And so we have Archer and crew. Not Well, it's in the time of this, but we really don't really see Archer and the crew on the Enterprise. It's just taking place as it's on its mission. It's referred to because what this novel starts off with is being on a Vulcan ship where they discover a damaged drone containing a distress call message from a species called the Dokalan. Would you say that? Is that good? I, that's that's how I pronounced it in my head while I was reading as well. So, yeah, I think we're off to a okay. good start. That is by far not the most difficult name we're going to have to tackle this episode. So <laughs> look forward to that, listeners. <laughs> I was complaining to Dan before the show on the other side of the page that uh, that's the one problem about reading Star Trek books and doing a show like this. You have to now actually pronounce this <laughs> in front of a bunch of people, <laughs> these <laughs> names. So, okay, so this race, the Decalon, did not possess space vessels capable of transporting people. So this drone was sent with a message saying that their planet was undergoing a global systematic events that had threatened to destroy it. And the Vulcans concluded that by the time they got this drone, too much time had passed. And this was based on the scientific information that the scientists had put in the drone as to the timetable of when this was going to happen. So the Vulcans already realized, well, this is a distress call, but it's too late. It's an unknown, uncharted space. And, you know, there's other things that we need to be doing anyway. So it, it's, it's just too late. And at some point then, Saval talks to Admiral Forrest about it. And Forrest is like, well, we should send the Enterprise. And Saval says, no, you know, it's, it's just too late. And anyway, Archer and his crew have got themselves in enough mess. We need to just give them something else to do. And then the part two ends with the words one day, because Forrest is like, maybe one day we'll go and just explore this area of space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was a nice little surprise in this novel, the inclusion of the Enterprise era stuff. And like you say, Admiral Forrest and Ambassador Saval making an appearance uh, I I really like these characters. I really like that it's tied in. And this was written in 2004. So the fact that, you know, Enterprise was still fairly new at the time and they could weave that in with the story, I thought was was pretty cool. Um, and I loved also that they tied it so specifically to exactly when in season one of Enterprise this took place because the ship that actually discovers the probe is the Tamir, which is encountered by Archer and crew in the first season episode, Breaking the Ice. And they actually refer to, uh, I think it was either having just spent that time with the Enterprise crew. I think this 
happens shortly after. So, you know, it really pinpoints exactly where it is. And you may remember that's the episode with the big comet and, and Reed and Mayweather land on it and build a snow Vulcan <laughs> and blow it up. And, uh, right. That's that episode. Yeah. And there's also reference in here that this is also shortly after the events when they uh, discovered the Vulcans spying on the Andorians. Mm hmm. And so there's some trust issues here, too, going on with the Vulcans and, and, and what they think of Archer at this time. Yeah, there's definitely some issues there. Uh, the Vulcans don't like Archer or the Enterprise. Not that that much changed over the course of four seasons. Not too much anyway. But uh, yeah, this is uh, really tying it to Star Trek continuity, which I think is really cool. Were you a little disappointed that we didn't get to see Archer? And the crew of the NX-01 in this. Oh. I mean, I think, I mean, the fact that's a next generation book, I guess when it started off, I was kind of like, oh, cool. This is cool. We're going to go to Archer and all them before we get to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I understand the, um, I want to say the impulse to do that, to kind of have a, have a deeper appearance by the NX-01 crew. But at the same time, it's not really a crossover novel so i think you know they probably held back on that a little bit and just kind of peppered in the references said wouldn't it be cool if the first time they encountered this probe was right around the enterprise era and probably didn't want to linger in that too much so that um to me my, my guess would be so that readers wouldn't start reading it and say hey i thought this was a next generation novel why are we suddenly getting into an adventure with Archer and his crew. I didn't buy an Enterprise novel or something like that. You mean just like watching the last episode of Enterprise and thinking, wait, is why am I, am I watching a Next Generation episode? Dang, <laughs> that is a good call. Yep, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> Which, by the way, no one complain if you like that episode. I actually do enjoy the episode. I don't. Th I don't. I don't think it's a great episode. I actually don't have issues with it. So I'll complain about that episode if you want. <laughs> I'll make my feelings known. <laughs> well, then we move ahead to part two. Here's what's interesting to me. This book has two parts, as I mentioned. So part one is chapters one and two, and part three is chapters three through 31. <laughs> it's just kind of <laughs> odd to me that part one is just two chapters, and then the rest of the book is part two. But. Mm -hmm. Whatever. More more of an extended uh, prologue, maybe, I guess. <laughs> well, and there is a prologue to the book. That's true. Before yeah. part one. So <laughs> it's, which we'll kind of touch on a little later here because it involves one of the uh, characters in the book. So now we get to part two and it does make sense to divide these up in a sense because now we're in the 24th century and we're with the Enterprise 1701E and we have Picard and crew on. Now, this book follows, of course, a time to be born and a time to die. So Starfleet has assigned the Enterprise to these more smaller, insignificant missions because I was glad to see the continuity continue between these books and the fact that, you know, Picard had, uh, there's been trust issues with Picard in the last book. So, you know, if you've read the, uh, heard the previous episodes or, and even read those previous books, you would know what I'm talking about here. So there's the situation with the Untalians, uh, that has been stabilized and they were just recent members of the Federation, but they're not 
really that well known or integrated with everybody else. But, um, or so, and you know, the insignificant missions that they've been sent on, as Riker calls them, you know, they're milk runs. And so the action plays off the events from those previous books after Picard had been relieved of command. So there is this nice continuity because throughout the book, they're addressing the fact that, you know, Picard was relieved of command. He's back in command again. There seems to be trust issues. He still has to kind of lay low. So they're given these lesser missions. And I, I enjoyed the tie into the others. It makes sense if this is a third book in a time two series, but at the same time, I felt like they kept re- revisiting that over and over again, different chapters. And we have like Beverly Crusher, who's contemplating going back to Starfleet medical and running that. And then, you know, there's comments about, well, you know, Jean-Luc and everything that the crew has been through and the crew's being punished for what, you know, Picard was accused of. And, I don't know. I just felt like that was dragging out for a little bit too much. Like they were trying to, you know, pad the book with more pages. I don't know. What did you think? I don't know. I I appreciated it. I liked it, tying it into those previous uh, books and setting up the situation that we get in Nemesis, where Beverly is supposedly going to be leaving for Starfleet Medical and stuff. I did enjoy uh, one particular bit that kind of kept coming up where, you know, the Enterprise is making the discoveries regarding the uh, the Dokalan people. And I don't think I'm spoiling too much to say that they do find the Dokalans and some of them thriving uh, in this asteroid belt after the destruction of their planet. And Picard's almost giddiness every time they make a major discovery. And he's like, oh, I can't wait to send this report back home. And, you know, I bet you they're going to be like, oh, the Enterprise is doing amazing things out there. And, oh, we thought this was just going to be some minor little mission. But, oh, look at that. You know, I kind of liked that uh, you see a side of Picard that, you know, obviously he wants to redeem himself and his ship and his crew. And to see him get excited about that I thought was kind of a neat little thread that wound its way through this book. Yeah. And I mean, I'd like the scenes and I, I feel like the characterizations are done very well and we're exploring a little bit of each character and what they're doing during this time. I just felt like they kept reiterating over and over again of how unfair this is. And, Oh, you know, for Picard, I just felt like it went on a little too much, but um, what I did like in addition to that, uh, visiting all these different characters and such, was that um, they were they were being sent on this mission, but the crew didn't want to do this. They thought, "Oh, this is low priority," and everything that we're saying. But at this, I'm thinking, but but guys, you know, this is exploration. Mm-hmm. They're going into uncharted space, never visited before, investigating a planet that had a distress call from two centuries ago that the Federation never investigated, I would find that to be interesting and exciting. So I was kind of surprised that they were like, uh, rolling their eyes. Like, really, we have to go do this. And I like that Picard got giddy about it after a while (laughs) because yeah, that's what this is about. It's exploring the unknown and trying to find things that you weren't maybe expecting. Mm -hmm. That's very true. That did bug me a little bit it goes to show you how far perception goes, you know, like if, if 
they'd been assigned to this mission and it was, you know, business as usual on the enterprise and they hadn't had these experiences before the mission might've been framed in a much more different way to the crew. And it's almost the, no matter what mission they get sent on now, it's kind of almost viewed through this lens of, Oh, Starfleet's, you know, got this agenda and they they want to, uh, I don't know, paint, not, not paint them in a bad light, but, you know, kind of shuffle them off and send them out of Federation space for a little bit so that people don't think about them, you know, and if this hadn't have happened, this mission wouldn't have that kind of perception. So it's, it's kind of unfortunate because yeah, I think this mission does sound really cool. I think if I were a crew member on the enterprise, I'd, I'd be one of the ones in, you know, the crew lounge going, Oh guys, this is awesome. Like stop being down in the dumps about this. How cool is this? You know, we got this distress call two centuries ago and we're finally following up on it. Like who knows what we'll find here. Well, and maybe the fact that if, you know, let's say they're on the Enterprise D and they're doing the regular missions and if they got assigned this, they would be okay with it. But considering what events had just recently taken place, maybe they're really looking hard at this and saying, okay, why are we being sent on this? Is it because of what happened? Is it because of Picard losing command and regaining it? And, you know, and so, you know, maybe they're just, kind of it just seems sour to them mm-hmm. you know that 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 they would be sent to go do that because i always thought the enterprise is always out there doing these types of things and we're only when we see episodes and and read books it's just those times where it's the exception it's you know not every mission is exciting yeah yeah and and that just like like you said it sours them on it taints what would otherwise be I think a pretty cool mission and this seems to be what the whole embodiment of to boldly go where no one has gone before is all about. Right. Yes. Do you remember when we were explorers? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, and there was some interesting tie-ins to not just episodes, but also to fiction. And uh, was it Brandon Shamatala that asked us about certain pages? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, so he had was reading the book and mentioned about certain pages that, hey, is this tie into some other book or something? And sure enough, yeah, Strangers from the Sky, there was mention about a, a book that didn't quite get right the first uh, contact with Vulcans because Strangers from the Sky was uh, written and published in the 80s. And of course, that was before First Contact. So the events of First Contact with Vulcans was a little different in that book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, Picard and, and crew would know exactly what happened at first contact because they were there. Um, and I do have to say, actually, it was Justin Ozer. Uh, oh, I knew it was either Justin or Brandon. Yeah, I know. And I was like, <laughs> I started to second guess us there too. I'm like, no, it was Justin. Justin was asking about that. So, um, strangers from the sky, uh, a really great Star Trek novel that I read years and years ago. Uh, it's, and it's really cool because it's one of those stories that's a book within a book and there's an in-universe book called Strangers from the Sky. And we learn in this novel that Picard is a fan of that book and enjoys reading it. And that actually comes up again later in the novel verse where I think Picard is reading it to his 
son Rene. Uh, spoiler alert for post nemesis continuity novels, but I think it's a favorite of Dayton Ward, and I I feel like it was also in his book that uh, probably either Armageddon's Arrow or one of those that that he included that detail again that Strangers from the Sky was a favorite of Picard's. And for those of you listening, yes, we have discussed doing that novel on the show. We just haven't got to it yet. Absolutely. <laughs> there are no plans in, in the near future, but yes, it's on the list. <laughs> the ever-growing list. Yeah. <laughs> that list has no, uh, doesn't show any signs of getting smaller anytime soon, regardless of what's happening with the Star Trek book line, I might add. <laughs> exactly. Well, the other part of this book that I found interesting is there was no Wesley in it because Wesley was such a central character in the first two and uh, he doesn't have a place in this one. I don't even think there was any reference to Wesley at any point. Do you recall? Maybe briefly, but yeah, none none that I can recall. I don't think he he comes up at all, Uh, which, yeah, was kind of surprising given given the huge role he played in the previous books. I think I think Beverly might have mentioned uh, if she moves back to Earth to head up Starfleet Medical, um, she'll be home when Wesley maybe gets kicked out of being the traveler or something like that. And and has. But yeah, it's a very fleeting reference. Yeah, I think you're right. I do recall something about, you know, her being on Earth in case. Her son. I don't even know if they said Wesley. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But uh, so another interesting component of this book is around Data. And Data is always an interesting character. And as we talked about in the previous books, uh, Starfleet had taken away his emotion ship. And he seemed to be okay with that. And I remember us talking at the time how it just, he just seemed to easily accepted of his emotion ship being taken away and that theme even continues in this book but it gets a little more interesting to me because he says that he thinks it is best not to pursue any goals of a personal nature since the emotion ship could be returned and reinstalled someday so he's leading us to believe that his quest to learn about humanity and to become more human is a matter of gaining emotion. And now that he's achieved that, even though it's been taken away, it could come back. And so he doesn't need to pursue that anymore. He states that the only reason that he tried to understand humanity was to create his own emotional subroutines, which now will only result in redundancy. So he doesn't need to discover a human side to him. So he's just data. Yeah. That, that made me really sad. Like, and In that way that, you know, sometimes Data would do or say something during the next generation, during the television series, that would just kind of make you a little bit sad because he uh, he doesn't supposedly doesn't have emotions. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, um, when uh, when his daughter Lal is is dying and. you know, he says, I, I will not feel any, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Lal says, I will feel it for the both of us. You know, just little moments like that, that, you know, the, the idea of data being emotionless and it's profoundly sad. The flip side of that was there was one really interesting moment as well when Jordy 
says something along the lines of uh, seeing a childlike curiosity in Data's face that he doesn't remember having seen for quite some time. And, you know, that it's just that little glimmer of a return of the data from from next generation, while at the same time he could, you know, be very emotionless. He also did have that childlike sense of wonder. So like just that slight glimmer of return of that, I thought was really interesting and, you know, made Jordy smile a little bit that like, oh, you know, here's a side of data that the emotion chip maybe took away and having data kind of back at where he was in the next generation series, you know, maybe he has something to gain from that as well. And it was just a very fleeting moment, but it was interesting. And I found myself kind of missing the data of that era as well a little bit. Yeah, that is interesting. I'm curious to see how this character is portrayed in the books that follow this. Mm -hmm. If it really plays off that idea and if we feel that he is more similar to the earlier data than he's been in the later stories. Um, But yeah, I I like the exchange between data and Jordy in this chapter about uh, his situation and you know even Jordy after data is talking about this you know Jordy says data I I don't know what to say to that what what about playing the violin or painting or acting out on the holodeck are you saying that you don't care about any of that anymore and data says I do not require even desire recreation or hobbies as I once did However, I do recognize the benefits of companionship and spending time participating in common activities of interest. If you would like, I will accompany you to the activity of your choice. And oh, it's heartbreaking. It, just, it, it is. <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> He's like, I'll, I'll still play if it's necessary. <laughs> if, if you feel that you need this, I will accommodate you. It's like, oh, but... Like when you watch the second season episode, um, elementary dear data, you can't tell me that data is not on some level somewhere in that positronic brain of his enjoying that experience. Like when they're on the holodeck and they, and they hear somebody running away and Jordy and data look at each other wide eyed and yell footfalls and start running. Like data's having fun in, on some level. And it makes me sad that that he doesn't seem to recognize that or maybe recognizes it, but doesn't see the value in it anymore. And, oh, that's that's heartbreaking. Well, the last line of that chapter says, as as he followed his friend out into the corridor, however, LaForge was already beginning to have his doubts. So I think we're in for an interesting storyline with data in future books. Mm -hmm. And we're we're spending a good amount of time talking about data in this book, but this really is just in a chapter. We, I mean, we still get some data in the book, but this is really only explored in this chapter. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a big uh, storyline of the book, but to me, it really stood out. Yeah. It's something that definitely jumps off the page and, you know, because he's a character that we care about and he has undergone a profound change and you know what that means going forward. I think you know, there are things being set up and like you, I'm really curious to see where it goes because I I don't remember anything of this storyline or anything like that. So. So stay tuned because we're going to hit all the A Time 2 books. 
one a month. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) So as we move on uh, into the story, the Enterprise, as we mentioned, goes to investigate this unexplored area of space where the probe came from. And according to the probe, the Ducalans extracted minerals from an asteroid belt that was an integral part of their economy and a signal that is detected among some of the radiation that the Enterprise uh, discovers. So not only do they realize that there's maybe some activity still going on in this asteroid belt, but there's radiation there. So they protect the ship. They you know, basically shield it to protect themselves from any radiation. And they find people alive on this outpost. And uh, as they, and the race is very friendly and very accepting and everything seems to be going okay. But all of a sudden it just so happens after all these centuries, when the Enterprise shows up, there's an overload in the reactor that eventually destroys the outpost as they were rescuing people from uh, the asteroid. And so two members of the crew died and several of the Decalans passed away in the rescue attempt. And so there was some question if there was some foul play at hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very curious set of circumstances. So they they discover the problem in the reactor and they scan it and they say, okay, it's it's we've got like half an hour or something before it totally fails. Lots of time to, you know, evacuate people. And then all of a sudden it accelerates and they have only 10 minutes. And then moments after that, it explodes unexpectedly. So, you know, and, and and they make a note of Torek being the one to make these determinations and take these scans. So a Vulcan who's very well known for precision, you know, he, he, he gives a very precise time reading as to when, you know, the, the catastro- catastrophic damage will happen. And it's clear that something else is happening and something is accelerating that. And based on other things that we learn, of course, later in the novel, it, it seems that something's going on here. We, we don't know exactly what, but there's definitely a force at work here. Yeah, it's, it definitely seems like there's some kind of active sabotage going on. Um, is it sabotage or sabotage? Or how does, how does uh, William Shatner say it? Sabotage. Ah, oh, forget it. Oh, I can't. I think I know what you're talking about, but uh, I, I always, uh, I always remember Valeris for some reason. Whenever I hear the word sabotage, you know, hundreds of years ago, French workers, fearing their lives being overtaken by automation, flung their wooden shoes called sabots into the machines to stop them from running. Hence the word sabotage (laughs) that was so good it was so spot on every word (laughs) every time every time i hear sabotage i'm i i have that speech run through my head and i'm like who can i tell about the sabo to (laughs) (laughs) that's right well i going back to this i mean laforge and and toric i I love seeing them together and getting a lot more Tarek in this and um, it's just really, it's really good to see his character expanded in this book. So that's, that's one part about, uh, this scene and some others that I really enjoyed. So as, as the, as things progress though, uh, we find out that, you know, Picard asks Troy, you know, if there's any danger 
that she senses from this race of beings. And she says, no, that they actually, you know, she actually thinks that they feel that the enterprise is more of a threat than the other way around. So, you know, this, the, uh, Ducalans are the primary species of this novel. So, Dan, I'm just curious, what did you think of them as a society and a race? I actually really like the world building that's done for this race. And that's actually kind of ironic world building since very early on their world was actually destroyed. But, you know, Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore do a really good job, I think, of making you feel for this species. And and portraying their story throughout the book we get these journal entries of and i'm going to attempt the name hyatin hyatin that's how i sure that's how i kind of (laughs) pronounced it and he um we, we get the journals of him uh from before the planet is destroyed and then through that calamity and then afterwards and when we're first introduced to him he's uh I think he's the husband of a, of a civic leader of some kind or something like that. Yes. And like, uh, I think uh, he was the husband. I think his wife was first minister. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, as it goes on, we, we get the, the calamity happens and he's one of the survivors. And then we meet him in the quote unquote present and he's the first minister. And it's kind of a nice little surprise. This, person that we've gotten to know through his journal entries we learn oh he's the first minister now that's cool and then again it goes back to his journal entries a little later and we see him become the first minister and face these trials so kind of through him we get an idea of what this species has gone through and it seems to be um you know quite the journey they've taken and and quite the undertaking to be able to recreate their society on these asteroids and also you know i think probably say we're getting into spoilers here to to spoil what's happening in the book they're undertaking a major project to terraform another planet kind of the only other planet in the system that you know fits they'll be able to terraform it and it's called ijuka And this is a project that's going to take, you know, well over, you know, well into other generations' lifetimes to uh, see complete. But, you know, it's really amazing what they've been able to accomplish thus far. And the audacity, I think, is said at one point uh, that, that they have to envision creating this uh, new planet for them in the future. So I really like this species. I I think they have a lot more depth to them than we usually get for kind of a species of the week that we see in the novels. Now that you say that, I, I do agree. I feel that this novel is taking its time, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm not saying that this is a slow novel. What I'm getting at is what I was mentioning earlier, that sometimes I felt... Uh, the whole thing about Picard losing his command and they're out on these milk runs is gets to be a little redundant, but the characterizations uh, and the scenes are so nice. It just, it just felt like you're there with the enterprise crew and you're, you're not being rushed into some kind of adventure or some action, but it's not as if like this book is slow. 
It hasn't, it's not that at all. I mean, it's definitely keeping a pace to it. And I think exploring this, the species and, and these people, it just, it, it's taking the time to do that, but not taking a long time to do it. It's just actually letting the story breathe and just play out and a nice rhythm. So I really did enjoy that about them and also how they have the asteroids that they pushed together to make form one big asteroid was really cool too. Yeah, that was really cool. I thought, you know, just kind of the engineering ingenuity of these people and, you know, the things they were able to accomplish. I liked that LaForge kind of gave them the credit they were due too, saying that, you know, he's not even sure the Federation would really undertake a lot of these, um, engineering, uh, feats in the same way that they would and have the same success, especially at the level of technology they're at, which is, you know, mid 21st century earth kind of thing, like right around Zephram Cochrane developing warp drive. You know, it's really cool that they've kind of gained the admiration of these people who are two centuries ahead of them technologically. Like that's, that's something like that's something to be really proud of, I think. I do like how LaForge is very complimentary to them because there are several times, and I think maybe other crew members did the same thing as LaForge did, but there are times where uh, the the Ducalans will say, oh, well, you know, you guys are more advanced and would know this more than us. And our crew and LaForge would say, well, in certain aspects of some things, but there's things that you're doing that might actually be better than what we're doing in some areas. So we can learn from each other. Mm-hmm. So that was played up a couple of times in this book. So, I mean, it's that very Starfleet Federation kind of way, you know? Yeah, totally. Well, I think like we mentioned, we're getting into spoilers and we haven't really talked a lot about what the major conflict in this book is. And it's kind of funny. We get, hints of it throughout the book there's a bunch of mysteries so we've talked a little bit about the accelerated uh disaster on the outpost that the enterprise rescues uh the decollins from losing a bunch of them and also two enterprise crew members but there's other things going on as well so they're treating a lot of the decollins aboard the enterprise and there's kind of a secondary infection or sickness happening and a lot of them are being struck down and then like they're, they're becoming mysteriously ill and then almost just as mysteriously um, they're recovering and they do kind of link that to maybe it's uh withdrawal from the radiation that's in the system. But I don't know if they, they outright have determined that that's definitely the cause or not, or if that's still kind of a bit of a mystery possibly. Yeah. It seemed like it's still somewhat a mystery, but I think they're, they pretty much concluded that that seems to be the only answer at this point. Mm -hmm. And then we get, I want to say kind of the differing uh, motivations of people on the council. So we have, and again, another name, <laughs> Kreish, Kreish, <laughs> the Dukalan science minister who's in charge of this terraforming project. And she is very much uh, in favor of the Enterprise crew and very excited about meeting them. 
Um, and then we have Nidan, who is the security minister, who's very suspicious and of the crew. And we get this very tense scene and it's kind of a surprise where Nidan asks to speak to Kreij alone in his office and orders his subordinates to murder him. And, but then the character shows up again later and we infer from other things that are going on that this character is actually another person in disguise as Kreij because Kreij is dead and this new guy is, you know, now taking his form and is now calling on, you know, the Enterprise crew being suspicious of them and, and that sort of thing. So there's some sort of conspiracy wending its way in the background here. Yeah, we don't really find out yet who is behind this. If I mean, they're not shapeshifters. No, no, there's... It's almost like using like a holographic device or, or no. What? Yeah. How are they changing form? It, it's some remember. sort of, yeah, espionage suit or something like that. Yeah. And it can, it, it's got a, it's got a keypad on the arm that, you know, it, it's got a built in computer and can, I guess, project different uh, personas, different looks and stuff. And the way we learn this is from another character uh, by the name of Kalsha, who is aboard the enterprise and we don't know what species they are. I kept kind of waiting to, for some sort of clue as to exactly who they are. If there's someone we've seen before or what's going on, my brain was going a mile a minute. I thought maybe they were section 31 at one point because, Oh wow. I didn't think that, but that's interesting. (laughs) Well, this infiltrator has such detailed knowledge of the enterprise. I thought maybe it's somebody from Starfleet somehow maybe linked to Admiral Nakamura and his whole agenda with data you know, because he's interested in data somehow. But then we learn that he's actually just wanting to kill data because data is their biggest uh, threat to, you know, figuring out what their plan is, whatever that may be. We don't learn that yet in this novel. So this is kind of the major cliffhanger that we get here is who are these people and what is their motivation? So this guy, you know, makes an attempt on data's life. And, you know, thankfully, because he messes up a little bit, he fails to take everything into account. He just disables data, but doesn't murder him. He doesn't make him irreparable. Uh, So, yeah, these guys, they're working to counter purposes against the DeCollins for some unknown reason. And Nidan, is he an agent under disguise as well? Or is he a DeCollin who's in on it? Or like, what's going on here? What do you think's happening? I don't know. I mean, the more you're talking about, it, the more I'm thinking about it. I keep going back to how this book started off with, you know, it taking place in 2151. And I feel like there's got to be some connection to that. Mm-hmm. I was wondering that too. Like at one point I was even like, are these guys Vulcans? Like Vulcan? That's what I was wondering. People? Yeah. Or, yeah. Cause they, they, they do avoid saying who they are, or what they look like. I mean, Kalsha, doesn't sound like a Vulcan name, but there's been all kinds of weird Vulcan names that maybe are different too. I don't know. Cause you, it, let's just pretend it's the Vulcans. And the more I'm thinking about it, I don't think it is. I don't think so. Because they wouldn't, it, if they discovered the probe two centuries earlier, 
and then now you know the enterprise is being said i don't feel like they're trying to cover something up or they would want to destroy this race for any reason like i mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like there's there was really any understanding of them or uh, you know yeah i don't know and i mean I, I of course that's what the next book is going to more than likely answer for us but i it would have to be either this race or some other species that we haven't been introduced to yet that we find out there's a, a very deep connection with the D- Ducalans that hasn't been told to us yet. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But like you said, they under, seem to understand the Enterprise, the operation of it quite well. Yeah, and I, I feel like as we get into the book, I feel like that might just be because he's been undercover aboard the ship, he's learned all of this somehow. Um, but... It, it seems very detailed, yeah. But but he is also very good about get, getting around in the computer system and accessing files and learning very quickly. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm going to rack my brain on this one for a while. Because when I was reading it, I I mean, I was very curious to know who it was. I just But I just kept t- continuing to read like, you know, okay, well, that might get answered later. It's going to come up. But now that we're talking about it now, this is the first time I've actually stopped to really think, yeah, who who are these people? Who Who's doing this? Yeah. And why? The big question for me is why? Yeah. Because definitely. if this, if the Ducalans have been on this asteroid for centuries and they're going to tear well that's the thing they're terraforming another planet mm-hmm. so maybe the species is from that planet oh maybe it could be something like that yeah you hmm. know i don't know anyway well we'll find out because you know what the next book is called a time to harvest indeed mm. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that's kind of the major cliffhanger for this book. We, but we also get, you know, some, some small minor ones too. minor, I guess. I don't know. Pretty big ones, I guess. We've got LaForge and Torek and the, the Decolin who's kind of showing them around Ijuka. They're careening towards an asteroid being chased by agents of the security minister Nidan and, you know, who clearly wants them dead because they've stumbled across this evidence that this computer program has been altered and, you know, it's throwing off the terraforming project just slightly, not enough to be detected right away, but it's just slightly to alter something. So, you know, we, that's kind of the major like to be continued moment of the book, I think is where we're left with those guys about to die seemingly. <laughs> and, yeah, it's uh, in in a way, you know, we complained about the last two books saying that they should have been one book and that it was kind of arbitrary to cut it when it did. And this book, I would almost say more blatantly just kind of cuts it off in the middle of the story. But at the same time, I'm more forgiving of it for some reason, because I really dig the cliffhanger. I really like that I'm really excited to read the next book. And maybe my feelings will change when we get book two. And I say like, oh, yeah, I guess that could have been just one book. But right now I'm like, this is cool. I'm glad where I'm happy where it left off. Well, we are reviewing the next book next month. So you have to wait a month. I know. Can, can you hold out that long? I don't know. We've got other <laughs> stuff to do in the meantime, other stuff to read. It's going to be tough because, yeah, I do want to pick up that next book and just to see what happens, you know? So, yeah. I know. I, I actually, 
maybe I should just jump onto memory beta and see. No, if it says don't anything. do that. That's never <laughs> that's never a good idea. Don't intentionally spoil it. <laughs> no, I won't do that. I won't do that. But yeah, no, I mean it's it's this has been an interesting read. It's been good. Um so I'm yeah, I'm curious now. I'm still racking my brain trying to figure out who it could be. I think now I'm thinking it's someone it's like some political thing with the Ducalans. It's some, you know, some group or something. It's I but I don't know. What do I know? <laughs> we'll find out in the next book. Hopefully we'll find out in the next book. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> So it sounds like you really like the book. So let's give uh, your official conclusion or your final thoughts of it. Yeah, definitely. I, I did really enjoy this one. I thought it was a really well put together story. Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore really have the voices of these characters down. And, you know, like we said, Data has kind of a limited role in this book, except towards the end, we get this attempt on his life. But even the parts that that had him he just had that that voice of the emotionless tng series data just perfectly and jordy and all of these guys just really sound like the characters and i'm really interested i'm invested in what happens to these people the decollins and and how this all turns out and clearly i think they're under attack somehow and I'm, I feel for them. I want to know that they'll be okay. I want the Enterprise crew to prevail. Like, I, I haven't been this invested in an alien of the week in quite a long time, I think. So I really, really enjoyed this book. I'd have to give it a really strong four uh, asteroids lashed together with some pretty impressive um, magnetic technology. Nice. That's great. Uh, I, I'm right there with you on this. Um, I would say, you know, as I mentioned about the, the pacing of the book, the characterizations, um, you know, it's not something that it's not a Star Trek book that I was reading where I felt like, you know, Ooh, this is really great. It just felt good. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in a, in a good way, meaning it just felt like a nice next generation story. It's developing, it's starting to grow, it's taking its time. It's, it's, it's reaching something that really seems like it's going to get even more interesting as we go along. So I like that progression, that crescendo up to, to something even bigger and better. So uh, I'm really anxious to see what this next book is going to bring. So I would say that I will give this um, four missing Wesley Crushers out of five. Ooh, very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Since Wesley is not in this book. (laughs) Poor Wesley. I loved him in the last two. That's why I'm saying it. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. I kind of want, I hope, I'm assuming the series picks up on him again at some point because, yeah. Yeah, he makes it to the wedding in Nemesis, so he comes back at some point, right? (laughs) Yeah, he's gotta. So this discussion has really reignited the excitement and interest I had when I finished reading this book a few days ago. And I think the only thing that's keeping me from immediately grabbing the next book just to see what happens is the fact that it's at home and I'm not so (laughs) i think i'd probably stay up tonight reading it if i could because i really want to know what happens next 
So, yeah, I mean, we have it coming up soon, so it'll be here before you know it. So, But like you said, we have a lot of other Trek things to go through. And I'm still excited about the little golden book. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) Well, you know, it's not just books aimed at two to five-year-olds that we're talking about here today. (laughs) So here's a quick look at some other things that you may have missed elsewhere on Trek.fm. Previously on Trek.fm, Meta Treks. You can see Gene Roddenberry playing with the idea of what we could become given our full potential. And the aliens that have achieved that, looking down and, and kind of criticizing or examining or evaluating humanity from a moral standpoint, almost like Q does in in putting humanity on trial. There's a sense in which humanity is being judged by these morally superior aliens that are genuinely pacifist. Or in the case of Q, genuinely narcissistic. Warp 5. There's 89 Suleban plus Archer and Mayweather and now Reed. And nobody notices this. An extra body because they don't have jumpsuits, so he doesn't have a number or anything. And probably all Suleban look alike to them. Of course they do. Mm-hmm. That's what we're getting at here, right? They're all yep. identical. There's a boy version and a girl version, and that's it. Literary Treks. Well, you know, when I was watching the show, the thing I saw when I was reading people's commentary about the show and, you know, the, what people's impressions of his character were, I was seeing a lot of people who who were people who suffered, like, kind of social anxiety and, and kind of, like, you know... Um, issues about their sort of like their sense of self and they were saying that they identified really strongly with the idea that Saru is this guy who's kind of like you know he's, he's being pulled in two different directions you know he has he has a very strong ego but he wants to be liked you know he's he wants to be an outgoing character but he's also quite introverted and and there were a lot of people who had that experience in their lives saying this character really speaks to me because I see a lot of myself in them the 602 club one of the things that really caught me in the movie was this whole idea of the family dynamics that we get. And uh, I was fascinated with this because a lot of Spielberg's early movies are about families. But in many ways, through the lens of like divorce or possible divorce. And um, Deneuve said that in the interview uh, that for the extras, the director of Arrival and, and Blade Runner 2049. He was talking about how that really struck a chord with him because one of the biggest fears for kids' life in the 70s was, you know, parents uh, splitting up and divorce was on the rise. And so one of the scariest things that could happen to you would be to have your parents split up. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond, and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or on the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And if you have the time, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a star rating and a written review. We really love your feedback. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well, though. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and on YouTube. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. You know, in a previous episode, my chair was breaking, and I, during this part, I kind of started to fall out of it. I've got a new chair, just so everybody knows I'm safe and secure now. But if you'd like to keep us keep all these shows coming to you each week... And to keep me from falling out of this chair, no. 
Anyway, Patreon does not support my chair. That was all me. But you can become <laughs> a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone, and it requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. You know, we'd love to hear your feedback on today's show or any of the other episodes we've done. There's many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the famous Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM and our P.O. Box at P.O. Box. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have one of those. Oh, well, we need to get one. <laughs> get some letters sent to us. Well, you know, you can also find us on Goodreads. Uh, we have a group there where we have our bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as what we're currently reading so you can know what is coming up on future shows. Plus, we have some great conversations happening there about the books and comics. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not reading strangers from the sky in your spare time to all the children of the world, <laughs> where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions, where I talk about mainly Star Trek, facebook.com slash Productions, and of course, in the Babel Conference, talking about Star Trek. Now, Bruce, when you're not suffering from a Sovala headache because he just won't leave you alone about the hijinks that the crew of the NX-01 is up to, where can we find you? Oh, oh, what a headache. Oh, he's such a pain. So you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the little underline Rex. And you can find me, of course, in the Babel Conference, as always. And you can find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report. And, you know, I have to tell you guys, if, if you do like Star Wars, check that out because... We've had several people from the Trek FM network on there. Now that I'm like the main host of that show, I'm bringing some Trek FM family into the fold over there. So check that out. So, <laughs> and, you know, our, our good friend Matt Rushing has been on several times on several episodes. So check that out. So, uh, yeah, that's Star Wars Report podcast. So. so thanks, everyone, for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.